Hello everybody. Hello. <coughs> Thank you for the invitation to come today. I really appreciate it. All the more since uh, just been getting little glimpses here and there of the work that's going on in Moody's Burn. It's very clear that the Lord is busy. Uh, Jesus said, my father is always at work and everything he does is good. Amen. He's righteous in all his ways. So, uh, we're thinking today, as I said earlier on, about the mercy of God. And, uh, and we're in Romans 12. Well, actually, we're going to start a wee bit before that. We're going to start at verse 32 of chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 32. bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we're going to stop at that point today. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I want to be thinking about the implications of God's mercy. But today, I want to think of how we got to the point of receiving God's mercy. Well, let's just think for a moment here because Paul says something interesting in verse 1 of chapter 12 I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy in view of God's mercy now, literally it means I urge you through I, I encourage you I exhort you through God's mercy but the NIV has actually picked up the sense of what Paul is saying here he's saying in view of God's mercy therefore I'm urging you in this direction okay? now whenever you see a word therefore in scripture it clearly means that you need to start looking backwards a bit, doesn't it therefore in view of this therefore in view of what I've just said or what just happened therefore we need to think of what's gone before because it helps to inform what he's about to say so what's the therefore well actually the therefore is the previous 11 chapters Everything he's been saying up to this point in Romans is, is in, encapsulated in that first line. Therefore, in view of everything I've been writing so far, I'm urging you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. In view of all of that. So, what has he been saying? What, 
what is it? What is this mercy that Paul has in view? Well, let's just try and rehearse for a bit something of the history of this word mercy. Because the only way to know God properly is to know him through his mercy. That's the only way we can know God properly. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a God of our own imagining. But once you get to know God through his mercy, you begin to be your proper side. Okay? I remember reading that um, Theodore Roosevelt, the American president, was a great fan of astronomy, and one of his closest friends was an astronomer. And they would visit together at the White House now and again, and at the end of the night they would go out onto the lawn, and they would look up into the night sky, and they would rehearse a little bit with each other. They had this little ritual that they did, and one would say to the other, now there's a spiral galaxy of Andromeda, uh, each one of its stars is bigger than our own sun, uh, and, and so they would, they would go through this little recitation of the wonders of the starry sky that they could see above them. And then one would turn to the other and say, well, okay, I think now we're a proper size, let's go to bed. we're a proper size, let's go to bed listen my brothers and sisters if there's anything that will help us get to our proper size it's an appreciation of the mercy of God so, where are we? Peter said once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy I want to say to you, mercy is not a word that fills you with pride mercy is a humiliating word if you've needed mercy, then you were on the wrong side of somebody who had a right to punish you and withheld it. That's mercy. He had every right to punish you. And he held back that sentence upon you and showed you mercy instead. So there's nothing to boast about in mercy except to boast in the one who showed mercy to you. We talk a great deal in, in Christian circles about the grace of God, and so indeed we should, because grace is his unmerited kindness and, and favour towards us. But mercy, my goodness, I wish we would talk more about the mercy of God. Because once you begin to see that God has actually withheld from you what you richly deserve in terms of punishment, then you begin to see the majesty and the awesomeness of, of, of this God. Paul has only just broken out into praise. He's been speaking for 11 chapters about the grace and the kindness of God in the history of Israel and in the kindness that he has shown to the Gentiles through sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And after 11 chapters of this, he just kind of, theology becomes doxology. He just suddenly breaks into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. This is Paul bubbling over. Because the impact of all he's been saying for the previous 11 chapters is just forcing itself down upon him. Now, this is all the more remarkable when, let me show you something if we go to the end of chapter 8. We read these wonderful words, which every Christian knows. In all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you say, yes! This is our God. This is this marvelous, marvelous Redeemer whose praises we've just been singing. But watch this. Listen to the tone. Think of the emotion that's in Paul here as he says, I am convinced that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And suddenly in verse 9, watch this. If this was on a graph, an emotional graph, you would see it go... Straight down. Listen to this. I speak the truth in Christ. These are the very next words. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. How on earth did he manage that? How did he get from this terrific height where nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then suddenly plummet to the depths. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Why does he feel like that all of a sudden? What did this, where did this emotional crash just suddenly come from? Well, actually, it's not sudden at all. Because this anguish is in his heart all the time. This is the paradox of, of this Jew who is the apostle to the Gentiles and he's bringing the word of God's mercy to people who are not Jews. He's writing to the Romans. And he's got this unceasing anguish in his heart because of his own people. What does, what does the, John the Apostle tell us about Jesus? He came to his own and his own received him not. There is the greatest tragedy of all human history. Jesus came to the Jewish people, their very own Messiah, and they dismissed him. And they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. And they cried, crucify him. Now if you read Sword magazine, you will find that we take a very strong stance in support of Israel and by the way I think that's a very easy thing to do these days for one simple reason anti-Semitism is reaching 1930s levels throughout Europe right now there are really cruel things beginning to happen and evil things racist things beginning to happen and Israel is not any more squeaky clean than any other nation it's a secular nation it's not any better or any worse than any other nation but it is the nation that God himself planted and he has a future purpose for it which is all through the book of Romans and that's why we, we stand with Israel it doesn't mean we stand against other people it means that we're not going to be part of the anti-Semitism that's rising and get caught up like most of the churches in Germany did during the 1930s against the Jewish people but Paul here when, when he in, in Romans 12 uh, talks about in view of God's mercy he's saying to a Gentile audience this mercy that has been poured out upon you and that you're currently enjoying was refused by my own people 
and, and look, at the, look at the anguish and how he describes it. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. What a man this man, this, this man Paul is. Can you, can you just think what he's just said? He's willing to stay out of heaven if it will let the Jews in. It's very much like Moses interceding for his people, isn't it? Hundreds of years before, Moses cries out to the Lord, Lord, blot me out of your book. So you see, Paul is so absolutely thrilled at the scope of God's generosity that he is now offering to the Gentiles. And that has... That, that he's in, in the depths of anguish at the same time about his own people because they've refused the same mercy. So when Paul says, in view of God's mercy, I'm urging you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, I believe it's important for us to have that view of God's mercy. We need to be able to look back and think, who is this God that Paul is speaking about? Well, let's just think about it for a wee minute or two. They had just crossed the Red Sea. We all know the story of how the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. The Passover night and the angel of death came to Egypt. And the firstborn of every Egyptian family, the firstborn of every family that didn't have the blood on the doorposts, lost its life that night. The firstborn. You can only begin to imagine the anguish in every household, including Pharaoh's. Our God is a consuming fire. C.S. Lewis picked it up in the little children's story about the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, where little Lucy says of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. This God we worship is an awesome God. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is not a God against whom humanity can shake its fist forever and get away with it. Sooner or later there comes a reckoning. And yet Peter is the one who tells us that the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because of the patience of God. He is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish. That's why Jesus is still in heaven. That's why he hasn't arrived yet. But you know, there was a day when Noah and his family had to go into the ark. And we are told not that Noah pulled up the drawbridge or that Noah sealed the boat. We are told that God shut them in. God shut them in and by, by the same token he shut everyone else out. My brothers and sisters, God does not change. He has never changed. His mercy is as great as ever it was. His judgment is as fair as ever it was. And his wrath is as terrible as ever it was. And Paul begins the epistle to the Romans by talking about the wrath of God that is being revealed against all the wickedness of mankind. 
You remember that John the Baptist was similarly convinced of the wrath of God and he said to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Interesting, you know. John didn't exactly say to him, oh, nice to see you lads. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, there is an uncompromising diamond hard side to the gospel. And it's not just about Jesus loves you. And I can prove that simply from the very birth of the church itself on the day of Pentecost. What did Peter have to say to the crowd that gathered in the square outside? This man was accredited to you by signs and wonders which God did in your midst through him. You crucified him. Were they thrilled to, to get that news? Were they thrilled with that first sermon? Did, did, did Peter warm their hearts by telling them Jesus loves you? No, my friends, he didn't. He told them that they had just murdered the Son of God. And we're told that the Holy Spirit worked upon the crowd and it says they were cut to the heart. The very depths of their being. They were convicted of the wickedness of their hearts before God. And they cried out, what must we do? And Peter said this. Now let's notice this. We're talking this morning about the mercy of God. Okay? Repent, he said. And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, but... Hasn't he just told these people that they've murdered God's son? And what is he now offering them? Forgiveness? And the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? Who's he saying this to? He's saying this to a crowd of murderers who have no right to expect anything but wrath from God. And what's he offering them? God's mercy. He's offering them the mercy of the very God whose son they have just judicially put to death. You know, my, my brother-in-law had a telling moment for me in my life one day. He walked into the house and he said, How are you doing, David? Are you happy? I said, Yes. He said, Well, tell your face. <laughs> And sometimes I wonder, you know, we read these amazing things from the scriptures. We discover these astonishing, awesome, generous, extravagant things about our God. And we can still manage to sit with a poker face and appear as though we're completely untouched by the whole thing. Andy Murray puts a final ball over the net and it's his and we go wild and the couch can't contain us anymore and we're up on our feet and yes! And Jesus pours out eight pints of blood for an ungrateful humanity and we can't break a smile. Hello? My friends. There's a spirit of great stiffness, I think, over all of us as Christians today. We need to be released by the same spirit that released Peter and James and John and the other apostles on the day of Pentecost. 
I, I swithered today whether I would bring some slides with me. I, I sit very lightly to the whole business of whether or not I'll use slides because of a dream that I had a few years ago. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these folks who's into very spiritual dreams. In fact, this didn't feel very spiritual. It was quite funny. I was lying in bed one morning. I had prepared 95% probably of a talk complete with PowerPoint slides for that night in Bury St. Edmunds. And I was half awake. It was that sort of, you know, you're halfway between sleep and waking. And I was drowsy. And all of a sudden I had this very, very vivid dream. It was the day of Pentecost. And the place was a riot of colour. There were, you know, bright coloured clothes from all sorts of parts of the, of the known world at that time. There were Jews who had come from Iran and others who had come from Italy. And they were they'd all gathered in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover. And, and the place was a riot of colour. And then, then the apostles and, uh, and the other believers came running out of the temple, tongues of fire on their head, and they were all glorifying God and shouting praises to him. And Peter looks like a man who's got something to say. And this is all happening in split seconds in my mind, in this dream. And Peter looks like a man who's got something to say, and he sees a flight of stairs, and he runs up this flight of steps at the side of the temple, and he's just about to deliver what he's got to say to the crowd. And he turns to James and he says, Have you got those slides, James? Now I was dreaming. It was just it was just a silly dream in some ways. But boy did it get my attention. Because by the time I got to the meeting I was to speak at that night, I knew I wasn't to use the slides. I wasn't even to speak about what I'd prepared to speak. I just left it all in my briefcase. And the Lord came down and visited the meeting. Because he got me just small enough to need him. But you know, this is our God. Here he is. This, the God of Pentecost and the God of the crossing of the Red Sea and the God of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the God of Calvary and the God of resurrection this is our God my brothers and sisters this is the one who has shown us mercy is that, is that wonderful or is that wonderful two months after crossing the Red Sea just two months Now, remember what the Jews had seen until this point. Remember what they had seen. They had seen every god of Egypt humbled because every one of those ten plagues was directly an assault by the living God on a particular god of Egypt. Every one of those gods, the the, the plague of flies, the plague of locusts, the plague of blood, whatever it was, it was an assault by the living God on the so-called gods of Egypt. And every one of them fell. And Pharaoh was considered to be a god and he couldn't even keep his own firstborn alive. We need to understand the awesome power that the Israelite people saw before they even left Egypt. They'd had 400 years of slavery, 400 years of every day being like every other day, 400 years of expectations totally through the floor and nobody ever sees anything special going on around here except the Egyptians and the slave drivers and the bricks and the straw. And then suddenly Moses appears and God is on the scene. God is in the room and suddenly it's all very different and they see all these awesome things happening. And then, just to cap it all, God takes them for a walk, probably about a million and a half of them, 
through the walls of water that once were just the Red Sea and they walk through this wall of water and Pharaoh's army comes after them and Moses moves his rod over the water and it comes back into its place and Pharaoh's army is nowhere to be seen and two months later they were hungry and they started to grumble can you believe it? when they finally got to the edge of the promised land they saw the giants they saw the castles they said oh can't do this can't do this this is, this is not for us uh, we should and they actually said this wait for this they said we should find a leader and go back excuse me but I thought that leaders were for taking us forward but they wanted a leader who would take them back to Egypt because they were so terrified of what they saw in Canaan that they didn't trust the living God who had delivered them through two walls of red sea water to take them into the promised land the whole history of Israel is a history of rebellion and restoration and rebellion and restoration and rebellion and restoration you read it right through and all the way through you see the mercy of God they got to the edge of the promised land and they turned back and God said to them that not one of those who had gone against him at the edge of Canaan would, would see the promised land they would not be allowed to enter and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness a rebel nation a nation on the wrong side of their God and where was God? he was with them they were dwelling in tents you know at the feast of tabernacles every year the Jews call it Sukkot it's around about September, October time they, they, they make temporary shelters little booths Sukkot is, is the Hebrew for booths and they make these little booths and they put them on the roofs of their houses and they sleep in these temporary shelters for a week or so just to remind them that in the wilderness their forefathers lived in, in tents and where was God living at that time? answer he was living in a tent too and whom was he living with he was living with a rebellious nation that walked in ways that were not good and didn't know the path of peace this is the merciful God that we're thinking of today such mercy such astonishing kindness what a God we serve just in case a few months ago I, 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 I was speaking elsewhere and I was trying to, to deal with this business of the historic accusation against the Jewish people that has always fueled anti-Semitism i.e. that they were the Christ killers and I, I was speaking to that issue and I remembered saying to the, to the group I was addressing you know, if we're going to defend the Jewish people, we have to defend them with the truth, not by trying to rewrite history. We can't say, well, the Jews weren't guilty of, of crucifying Jesus. It was the Romans who put the nails through his hands. 
Or somebody else said, well, actually, it was a deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. So it was God who actually crucified Jesus. And all the way through, oh, there's all these excuses. Let's let the Jews off the hook. I said, no, absolutely not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. That is the historical fact. They wouldn't receive him when he came and they, and they got rid of him when, as soon as they could. That is just a fact. We don't defend the Jews by keep it, keeping them out of the dock before God. They are guilty as charged of killing the Son of God. I'll tell you how we defend them. We defend them by standing in the dock with them. Because he bore all our sins in his body on the tree. Jew sins, Gentile sins. He bore all our sins in his body on the tree. We're all guilty before God. There is none who does good, not even one. There are none righteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, my brothers and sisters, this mercy is the one thing that all of us need. We need it more than the blood in our veins or the breath in our lungs. We need the mercy of God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Solomon said in, in his little Ecclesiastes, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Every one of us needs the mercy of God. And so Paul takes 11 chapters to describe the mercy of God. Next week, by God's grace, I hope that we're going to have a, we're going to have a kind of whistle-stop tour of Romans 1 to 11. So that when we get to this outburst of praise at the end of chapter 11, we begin to have a view of God's mercy. And, and we burst out in praise ourselves. That's my prayer. So please pray for me in the week to come. Pray for all of us in the week to come. That we may have an encounter with the mercy of God such as we've never had before. Because you see, Romans 9, 10 and 11 is an astonishing discovery. And this is just a little kind of trailer for next week. Romans 9, 10 and 11 is an astonishing discovery because having, having taught about grace for the first eight chapters to the point where he can say nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul then takes this emotional dive and begins to share the grief that's in his heart about the Jewish people. But then he goes on in chapters 9, 10 and 11 to unpack how God's mercy is still there for the Jews and how he has not given up on Israel. And if he did give up on Israel, we would have to wonder if one of the days he's going to give up on the church too. We are talking about a God whose faithfulness we will never have to question nor fear its failure. This is our God, brothers and sisters. And I don't think I should say any more. So let's just pray. Righteous Father. Oh, what a joy it is to take that beautiful title that Jesus himself gave you. And take it upon our own lips and call you Righteous Father. What a joy it is 
to know that you are righteous in all your ways. You're never going to owe anyone an explanation for anything you've done. You're never going to be proved wrong. You're never going to need vindication. You're righteous in all your ways. And you are our Father. We could not possibly deserve the riches of your fatherhood in our lives. But that's precisely why we have reason for joy and praise. Because we are your children and we will never deserve to be so. We thank you for the grace you've poured upon us, Lord. We thank you for the mercy that you showed us. We thank you that Jesus took upon himself the punishment that belonged to us. So help us in the coming week, Father, to ponder your mercy often and long, to reflect upon it until you take us to the place that Paul got to, where praise just burst out of his heart. And give us too, Father, that ability to plummet down to the depths of anguish as we consider our country that no longer does God. As we look at the lostness in people's faces, where we see eyes where there's no light. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray for the folks around the doors of this church, this, around this lighthouse, Father. We thank you for the presence of your people here in this town. We bless you for the communion of the saints around the world, Father. You have not left yourself in any corner of the world without a witness. And we bless you that from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, your name is indeed praised. Yours is the only empire on which the sun never sets. And we bless you. And we put all our hope and all our trust in you and pray that you would teach us about your mercy in the coming week until we can come together again to think some more and praise some more. In Jesus' name. Amen.